The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my dad. All right. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. Um, today, uh, today, I am honored to have uh, Bill Smith, William S. Smith, uh, join me. Uh, he is the author of Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt, and Warlike Democracies. Now, Irving Babbitt is interesting. He's an overlooked writer of political thought. Uh, his most important work, Democracy and Leadership, was published uh, way back in 1924. Going all the way back to my undergraduate days, um, I've always sensed that political science builds a wall between the behaviorist theorists of the 1950s and some of the most, uh, some of the very important theorists who often predate them. And I think Irving Babbitt kind of falls into that, uh, into that group, ones who are subsequently sometimes overlooked or overshadowed. Uh, he is a complex figure uh, who never was officially a political scientist, but nonetheless has had an extremely uh, long and lasting influence upon the discipline. Now, my guest here today, Bill, has studied the thought of Irving Babbitt extensively. So I'm very glad that he's here for a conversation about a figure that is likely going to be new for many. So welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast, uh, Bill. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself to start out? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Honored to be here. Um, uh, so I'm, uh, I, I was a political philosophy student uh, as an undergraduate. I was exposed to political philosophy actually by Professor Jean Kirkpatrick at, at Georgetown, and she was the one who got me interested. Catholic University has a very strong political philosophy uh, department, so I went there and studied for, uh, as a graduate student. And then I, I kind of, I was working on my doctoral dissertation and I kind of lost my way. I, I lost, ran out of money and uh, I ended up working on Capitol Hill, working on all sorts of policy jobs, both in the White House and on Capitol Hill. And then I, I ended up joining Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, and I was there for a long time. But I never really lost my interest in political philosophy. I was always reading political philosophy in my library. And when I retired from Pfizer, my wife said, why don't you just go back and finish? And that's exactly what I did. So I got my PhD at 57. Um, and uh, my doctoral dissertation ended up being this book. Um, and I'm, I'm extremely interested in Irving Babbitt, I will say, with some immodesty that I think I've read more of Irving Babbitt than any living person. I, I lived in the Harvard archives where his papers are and spent a lot of time reading him. And, and I do think he's a very underappreciated figure. Um, he, he didn't start out writing about politics. He was a literature professor, especially French literature, although he was very well-schooled in the classics and read Greek and Latin. And, um, and what happened was really he watched as the Great War came, came upon the West and was extremely concerned that sort of trends in romanticism that he had been reading about had now saturated Western thinking and was one of the causes of the Great War. Uh, and he found that to be a tragedy. And I think that's why he ended up writing Democracy and Leadership, which is, as you said, was published in 1924 after the Great War. But he was trying to diagnose really what was going on in the West and what led them to this terrible tragedy. I like the fact that, uh, that you've got a career that expands just, uh, um, academia. Uh, I think sometimes, um, sometimes that's lacking in academia is, is a sense of a background in terms of um, working in other types of fields and, and having a sense. It really, I think, shapes and changes the way that you look at institutions sometimes, uh, especially if you're in a position that allows you to hire and fire people, allows you to be able to uh, train people, lead teams, um, I, I would assume that that probably has had an influence on your uh, on your thought about uh, philosophy and politics as well. 
It has. I mean, I, you know what, I'm somewhat realistic about human nature, given my experience. Uh, I've, I've, I've really never been in the ivory tower uh, to the degree that it isolated me. Um, and I, I know how to read a balance sheet, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I can actually balance a budget and, and uh, you know, anticipate when we're going to be short and when we're going to be long. And, then, you know, it's, uh, I, that, that's been useful. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I wrote a, um, I, I've been reading up on, on the, uh, on the philosophy of the radical, um, democracy like Chantal Mouffe. And so that kind of sparked me to go back to some Karl Marx that I had never really felt the need to be able to go deep into. And yeah. so I wrote a blog piece on uh, capitalism volume two. And it's interesting because as I'm going through that, he's really almost philosophizing about balance sheets and income statements and cash flows in a very obvious Marxian way, you know, but uh, it's interesting because I'm reading that I'm thinking, you know, I don't know that any communist scholars or Marxist scholars have have ever taken a class in accounting or finance to actually understand (laughs) what he's talking about. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And so it, it was interesting because uh, I have my MBA. And so I thought it, it was interesting to me because I was like, wow, I, I never thought my MBA would help me understand Marxist philosophy. But here I am. <laughs> here, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> if you know anything about money, Marxism is not really the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not advocating it, but it was interesting. It, I, it's necessary to understand some philosophy and understand some things. And it, it was interesting. It did help me understand some some ideas about liberalism too that were different yep but um anyway so i I, i'd like to get into the book that you've got and your book um i I like to start out with some of the major concepts because sometimes people are talking sideways at each other they one person means one thing when they say democracy another person means another so i like to start out uh since your book starts out with two very important concepts that sometimes I think mean different things to different people. I'd like to just start out by asking you if you can define for us um, what you mean by democracy and imperialism, since those are that's the title of the book. Yeah, no, no, this is a great way to start. I think they, they asked the Buddha once, if you had all the power in the world and you, you were in charge of everything, what's the first thing you would do? And the Buddha replied, I would make words correspond to things. So, you know, definite <laughs> definitions are, are important. And, and there are, you know, when you say the word democracy, it's almost as if people suddenly start oozing with sentimentality. This is the most wonderful thing ever. And, and Irving Babbitt points out that, you know, a, a reckless democracy is one of the worst forms of government you can have. That an orderly constitutional democracy is the best form of government, but a disorderly uh, demagogic democracy is one of the worst forms of government to live under. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, there are different types of democracy and, and Irving Babbitt in actually in, in Democracy and Leadership says, writes about different types of democracy, um, the, the kind of democracy you would want and the kind of democracy you would not want. Imperialism is, a, is an easy term to, to describe. Um, you know, there is in human nature and some people a certain will to power to impose their will upon other people. And imperialism is essentially that. It's when leaders of one country decide they're gonna impose their will on another country, whether that's just or unjust, that's, that's really what imperialism is. Um, so my book explores how do democracies become imperialistic? Um, you know, there's, there's a, a school of international relations called democratic peace theory. And I think there's something to it. I, I won't dismiss it. You know, they, they point out anecdotally that uh, countries in Latin America, for example, where there were two military dictatorships, were always constantly at war. And when they became democracies, the, the, the war subsided. And, and I think there's something to that. But there's also the case that some of the world's most famous democracies, thinking of ancient Greece, the Roman Republic, uh, the, the French Revolution, uh, these democracies became quite warlike. Um, you know, the, the Athenian democracy ended up at the bottom of a quarry in Syracuse uh, because they were so warlike. Um, and so I wanted to explore that. Well, when, how, do, how do democracies suddenly become warlike and imperialistic? Um, and that's not to take away from democratic peace theory. Again, I think there's something to that. But it's also, you have to recognize that sometimes democracies get out of control. Um, 
It's it's interesting because um, when you talk about democratic peace theory, a lot of it uh, begins obviously with Kant's uh, perpetual peace. Um, the idea and the idea that kind of sprung out of that has oftentimes been this idea that democracies don't fight each other. But I've, I've always found that interesting because when you go back to uh, Thucydides um, and the Peloponnesian War, um, it the turning point for Athens was when they invaded another democracy, which is Syracuse, like you just explained. Um, you know, assuming that we accept that these Greek uh, city-states were truly democracies, because obviously they had they had slaves, uh, the medics weren't allowed to vote, they had very restrictive. Um, I mean, today we would we would not refer to it as a democracy. We would say that it was a sense of an oligarchy. Yes. But none, nonetheless, like we we've always referred to these as democracies. And a lot of theorists today, um, I, I've written about Rosalind Fuller and others that idealize. Um, Athens as a democracy, and it's it's interesting because right you know their turning point was the invasion of another democracy, which flat out goes against the whole concept of democratic peace theory. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and and you know there's there's been a recent book about uh, um, Thucydides, um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in which the author, who's a Harvard professor, basically says the lesson of Thucydides is that great powers. Or had end up in a rivalry with emerging powers. And that's all very interesting and there may be some truth to it, but at the end of the day, what happened with the Athenian democracy is they became imperialistic. They lost control of themselves. They lacked restraint. Um, that's what was ended up being their demise. It, it was not just this balance of power theory. Um, it, it was their, their, their character uh, dissipated. Um, and uh, and you know I I am an admirer of of Immanuel Kant I think he was a mm-hmm. he was a genuine uh, genuine uh, very well intentioned philosopher but you know if you read, read Perpetual Peace I think was published in 1795 or the, you know the end of that century and it was the beginning of 30 years of warfare terrible warfare in the in the West and. You know, he was off there saying, well, we, we can get rid of standing armies. We can do all these things. There's a certain naivete I found in his book, um, given the events that were going on at the time and the rise of Napoleon, that, that just, it just doesn't sit well with me. Um, that, that's, that's the problem I have with the book. I, you know, I think, I think he's a moral philosopher. I think I admire him, but uh, that perpetual peace was a bit naive um, and, and not realistic about human nature. Now, Hey, to, to kind of draw away from Kant and to, to start to draw us closer to Irving Babbitt's solution here, what I find is interesting, like Babbitt talks, finds that the way around this is to say, hey, we should find our moral, moral virtue um, through leaders who are able to help direct and temper democracy. Um, I find it interesting. I mean, I've been writing a lot lately because I, I find a similar idea, but it's it's upside down. Where I think of it as as we need to ask more of the citizens themselves in a democracy. When you have the right to vote, you have democracy, and I think of democracy a very broader Dalsian sense. Um, you know that that we need to ask more of citizens. But I kind of come to some of the same viewpoints in terms of. Um, a kind of conservative sense of democracy where it's, it's not just about rights and privileges. It's also about um, obligations and duties within a democracy. But can you talk a little bit about how Irving Babbitt uh, believed that you needed a sense of, of leadership and, and how we would get there um, to be able to kind of temper democracy? Yeah, I think Babbitt, Babbitt was concerned that uh, <clears throat> as rece- religion had receded in the West, that what, what's the restraining force on people's behavior? What, what causes them to uh, rein in their passions? Um, and he, he explored that in all different types of religious settings. He explored it in Buddhism. He was a, he was a student of Eastern religions, Confucianism um, and Christianity. And he, he pointed out the common element among all those was that the human beings have a higher self and a lower self, and they can't be dominated by the lower self or you're going to have chaos in society. And it's particularly important that the leaders in a democracy are guided by their higher, by higher selves, uh, because uh, the, 
a democracy that's poorly led is a bad democracy. Now, the citizens, of course, also have an obligation to be orderly. They participate in the, in the political process themselves in a democracy. And so they have to have a certain self-order themselves. But leadership, in his view, was the key. That's why his book was Democracy and Leadership, that you cannot have a decadent leadership and a successful democracy. It just is not possible. Um, so difficult to talk about that you know, right now during the pandemic and seeing um, how the current Trump presidency has kind of moved forward on, on everything. Do you feel like Trump is an example of a failure of leadership then in terms of how he approaches? Um, do you have any kind of thoughts in terms of the approach that he's been kind of moving forward on the pandemic? Because I feel like that's a good, good point to a good moment to kind of bring up current yeah. events for the moment. Yeah, I think Trump's a complex figure. And obviously, sure. if I write a book about character, uh, I, I don't want it to be so unsubtle that a person either has good character or bad character. People have different types of vices, right? You really, Plutarch, he points mm -hmm. out there are all different types of characters, traits, and character flaws. And, and I think Trump has a number of character flaws. You know, I mean, he's certainly a was a money grubber for many years. Um, he probably, given his, he has three wives that were all models. He probably had a, a, a sexual appetite. You know, so he's, the guy does not have flawless character. I have, I have admired his restraint when it comes to foreign policy, however. He has I was going to get to that too. Yes. Yeah, he hasn't started any wars. Um, and he, in fact, he wants to bring, bring the troops home from Afghanistan and potentially Iraq. And, and I'm a fan of him on that, on those grounds. I'm, I'm not a fan of him on some other grounds, but I'm a fan of him on those grounds that he is actually showing, showing a certain restraint. Now, in other cases, he, do, he doesn't show so much restraint. When it comes to Iran, I think he's, he's wildly out of control and, 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 uh, and way, way, way too lacking in restraint when he, the way he approaches Iran. Um, but uh, so I think he's a flawed figure. Um, but I, I, the fact that he hasn't started another Middle Eastern war is reassuring to me. It's, it's interesting to me because Babbitt places virtue and a sense of um, moral character as important to be able to show restraint and keep us out of wars. And yet Trump seems to be the exact opposite of that, yet he is doing exactly like you said, he, with the exception of Iran and to some extent, especially recently China. Um, with uh, New York Times had a really bizarre piece today. Not bizarre, like, hey, it's out of line, but it was interesting today that it was talking about how the many in the Trump administration want the legacy to be a severing of diplomatic ties with China or approaching that direction, yeah. um, which, again, would be the opposite, I believe, of showing showing a sense of restraint. Um, do you think that there's a... that Irving Babbitt put possibly too much stock in the idea of, of a connection between those two in terms of moral character and uh, diplomatic restraint um, in terms of his philosophy then? I, Babbitt was very much a realist. Um, mm -hmm. And if you read his thoughts on contemporary events, he was not uh, in the slightest way naive about the potential for evil in, in uh, different regimes. So I, I'm not... Uh, I, I think he, he, he felt that good character in leaders at the top is a rare thing, but that's the only thing that's going to allow for peace to come. Um, so, you know, Plato, I don't, I don't think it's Plato who said it, but there's this expression that only the dead have seen the end of war. And I think Babbitt would probably agree with that because leaders with good character are pretty rare. Um, and if you get two of them, that's even even more rare. So the idea that we can make peace with China would require both the Chinese leadership and the American leadership to exhibit a certain level of character and restraint. And I'm not sure we have it in either, in either leadership. Um, no, that's fair. I mean, Xi Jinping has obviously crossed many lines and yep. continues to cross many lines. Uh, I was reading a piece in, um, I think it was the Times again, uh, about how China is now crossing into Indonesian waters to be able to fish purely so that they can claim, essentially claim, hey, we're here, this is our sea, we have rights to this area, even right. though 
diplomatically everyone gives uh, says that it's Indonesian waters and the Indonesians are very hesitant to take on a country that's that large. Um, even a country as large as Indonesia is afraid to take on China, yeah. which uh, yeah. um, obviously they're not at the level of power of the United States, but it's, it's not a small country. The Chinese regime, I mean, let's be honest, is kind of a loathsome regime. I mean, the, the Chinese sure. culture and tradition is so rich and so wonderful, and that's all been suppressed um, uh, by this current regime. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be whimsical, but I, you know, you would hope that the, the roots of Chinese culture would someday reemerge, and um, and the real true genius of, of Chinese philosophy and religion would come to the fore. And, and right now it's just being suppressed by a communist regime, a pretty thuggish communist regime. That's interesting you mentioned that uh, about the rich heritage. And obviously you can go back thousands of years for the Chinese heritage, but there is an interesting piece uh, a few years ago in Journal of Democracy uh, by Orville uh, Schell uh, that's called the ne a Neglected Dem Democratic Heritage that's literally about China itself and the, you know, the ways that it has reflected and actually encouraged democracy at different points of its history. Obviously this is not one of them, but they've got a lot of strong thinkers that have, that have pushed for it. A lot of things that their, their history is very diverse um, as well as their intellectual. Well, and and let me, let me just say there are a number of scholars in China who are Irving Babbitt followers. Hmm. Um, actually, at Peking University and a few other universities, there's a no, there are a number of scholars who write about Babbitt all the time, um, and they're attracted to him in part because he was such a student of Eastern religions that uh, uh, they they caught his attention. Uh, he caught their attention. Um, so I'm I'm actually communicating with some of these scholars very carefully, but <laughs> communicate with them uh, occasionally. Um, and sure. they prom they promoted my book in China and they wrote good things about it. Um, I have great respect for the Chinese people and for Chinese culture. Um, and I'm, I, I wish someday that that, again, that would reemerge um, because it is a great civilization. Yeah, of course. Um, now, something I want to get to is we're talking about international relations before we kind of move on. I did want to ask you something that I think is at the heart of this idea of, uh, of warlike democracies, the way that uh, Babbitt describes it. Do you feel would Babbitt feel as well that the tendency towards war then is incidental to a democracy or do you think it's fundamental to the nature of democracy? I think it's fundamental to decadent democracies. <laughs> uh -huh. you know, when, when democracies decay, one of the things they, one of the things that happen is they become warlike. And that's just, you know, if you think of, think of the temperament of George Washington, you know, so many people tried to drag us into war with France and he showed impeccable restraint um, as the president to avoid getting into these entangling alliances and European wars. And, and now think about what our leadership has done in Iraq, for example, where mm -hmm. we went, went to war on, on phony intelligence, uh, we killed hundreds of thousands of people. And for what? What was the point of that? Um, and, you know, you just you have to make a connection between, you know, the the sort of t terrible state of our domestic politics and our warlike international relations. There's a connection between those two. When, the, when democracies start decaying, they, they end up invading a lot of other countries, as we saw in the Roman Republic and we saw in Athens and we saw in the French Revolution, to be honest. I mean, the French Revolution started out, Robespierre said, you know, we can't, we can't invade and go after all these other, uh, other monarchies around, around Europe. We, we, mm -hmm. we don't have time for that. We're too busy. And he was overwhelmed. He lost that fight. And uh, they ended up in wars with all of these, uh, Austria and all these uh, surrounding monarchies because they came so, became so belligerent about them. So democracies can become imperialistic uh, when they're in a, a decadent state. And, and I think, unfortunately, that's the, the United States' recent wars uh, are exhibiting that kind of trouble. Okay, so to, to take a step back here, to be able to find those leaders with strong character, the impression that I got from your book, um, and your book, I think, makes the point and helps clarify Babbitt's ideas partially through his biography, um, that when he came, I believe it was to Harvard to be able to teach, he was a classics professor to begin with, but was dismayed by the fact that the classics education um, 
was very much smaller and much reduced in prestige because they'd removed it from the general curriculum or at least significantly reduced it. I'll be honest, I kind of felt some uh, tones of uh, Patrick Deneen within this kind of discussion, by the way. I'm not sure <laughs> if you've read his book. but yeah, um, I, Yes, I have. Okay, yeah. I, I got some kind of you know feelings in terms of that coming from Babbitt. He, uh, so he's frustrated that, um, about the change in terms of Western education at the time, the sense that I got, and I believe you, you said it explicitly, but clarify if you didn't, was that it, it was the classics were necessary to be able to temper your, uh, be able to establish a, a sense of, of, uh, moral understanding, moral, um, identity, you know, so that, that you were able to live the moral life. Um, am, am I going the right direction in terms of you're, that? You're right on target. Um, I, you know, he, uh, Charles Elliott, the president of Harvard at the time, made the classics a, uh, an elective, essentially, you know, and it sure. used to be a requ requirement. And Babbitt, unfortunately, professionally, wanted to be a classics professor, but when they downgraded it to an elective, there was no room for him. So he became a French professor. He, he just had a knack for languages. I mean, he knew Eastern languages, Sanskrit, uh, he, he, could, he could read everything. Um, uh -huh. And uh, so he was disappointed because he believed Harvard was a place that trained democracy's leaders, right? And and the classics taught uh, Harvard students that mastering yourself is the most important part of life. Getting control of yourself, mastering your passions, mastering your, mastering your behavior. And uh, by weakening that requirement, he felt he would, they were weakening the, uh, the, the leadership of the democracy, uh, the future leaders of the democracy. Actually, he was so upset, he wrote a whole book about it called Literature in the American College that really makes his argument for why the classics and the liberal arts should be infused with this understanding of self-mastery. Um, and, and, and he believed that, that, that this weakened democracy. When you weaken education, you weaken democracy. Now, I found it interesting that he felt like the classics were so important because I found it, I, I, I see a lot of areas where there's a little bit of a tension in terms of um, contradiction in some of his ideas and this is one of those areas because it's fascinating to me how he finds inspiration in the personal reserve of George Washington um, and then finds the opposite in terms of Thomas he sees his kind of foe in Thomas Jefferson who clearly does resemble more of the Rousseauian um, type of uh, type of philosophy both in his politics and and everything else. But it was Jefferson who had a very strong classical education. And going back to, to the recent book by Ron Chanel, um, you know, he discusses Washington as having, as, as always feeling insecure about his sense of education yeah. and not having, being one of the weakest scholars of the founding fathers, not the weakest, but among them, he always felt behind. Um, in fact, I, I think of the way that Washington on his plantation would get out and actually do manual labor with, with the slaves and say, this is how you need to do it. This is what you need to do. It, it almost feels a bit more like a Rousseau than Jefferson ever would actually do because um, it felt more like an Emile style education um, with the way that Washington grew up and established his morals. Do you see a little bit of uh, of irony or contradiction in terms of how Babbitt idealized the classics and yet found inspiration in, in, in leaders who didn't necessarily reflect that education? Well, <clears throat> Jefferson's education was, yes, he had a classical education and he did read the classics, but he was largely an Enlightenment scholar. I mean, Fair. what he studied at, at William and Mary were Enlightenment thinkers, and he was on the cutting edge of the Enlightenment. So he wasn't uh, a classicist in the way Babbitt understands the classics as far as ethical self-mastery. Um, and Washington, while he was self-taught, was concerned with self-mastery. I mean, he, I think from his earliest days, he, he, uh, he copied this book that they had in France about the rules of behavior. He copied it over and over and over when he was 14 years old uh, to, to try to teach himself 
how do you how do you exhibit decorum in your behavior? How do you master yourself? And so I I think he uh, Babbitt looked at Washington as the ultimate uh, leader, uh, the, the the ultimate type of leader in a democracy, someone who's concerned about their own behavior and concerned about mastering themselves and and overcoming their passions in a way that Jefferson Jefferson was sort of a libertine, you know. I mean, he he I I'd, I'd like to have a beer with Jefferson, I, you know, but but he wasn't he wasn't concerned as much with self-mastery in the way that Washington was, uh, regardless of their educational backgrounds. I, I would, it's interesting the way that you describe that story from Washington, because it also, um, Cherneau has also written the biography on Hamilton, obviously, and Hamilton fits that as well, where he came in. Um, obviously, you can go to the musical too and listen to the songs that tell you about it, but uh, um, the uh, the way that he, um, comes over to New York, like around 19, he's a little bit behind everybody. He doesn't actually graduate from King's College. He, um, he leaves early, but he teaches himself law, wrote the, uh, wrote the study guide that people used for what was it like 50 years afterwards for, yeah. to take the bar exam over in, uh, in New York, but it definitely has that sense of self mastery and clearly was a better reflection of Washington's political philosophy than Jefferson was. Um, so they had that, that same character. Uh, Jefferson was a Rousseauistic type, type figure. You know, he, he wrote that letter, I forget what it was to Madison or somebody, where he said, you know, you need a revolution every once in a while. I mean, yes. you, don't, you don't need a revolution every once in a while. You need an orderly constitutional republic. You don't need a, a revolution. But he had that Rousseau streak that, you know, the people are virtuous. And if the people's will can just come out, everything will be fine. Uh, and that, that's problematic from Babbitt's perspective. Rousseau, though, all right, so I'm, I'm reading through Confessions. I've read Rousseau before a, a bit of his work, and I'm going back in, into Confessions. Um, occasionally, I pick it up and put it down um, every so often. And I'm in, uh, in book six right now, where he literally goes through his education style. Yep. And it's interesting because his approach isn't that much different than these other self-taught uh, thinkers like Washington and Hamilton. He, he, you know, really pushed himself in terms of the classics, especially pushed himself in terms of learning lots of different concepts. Um, and again, you know, reflects some of those uh, comes to different conclusions. I'm not going there, but um, his approach to, to study uh, oftentimes reflects the approach of, uh, Washington and Hamilton, especially because he he says he didn't really start till twenty five. He he definitely lived more almost like a vagabond. Yeah, if you go through the confessions before that, Rousseau, in my view, is the most important intellectual figure in five hundred years. In the last five hundred years, he's uh, what he did is create a new understanding of what morality is. You know, the traditional morality under Christianity, under Buddhism, under Confucianism, was that every human being has to master themselves. They have a dark side and they have a good side. And the goal in life is to overcome your darkest impulses and train your own behavior to be orderly and, and virtuous. Rousseau throws all that out and says, you know what, everybody's naturally good. The, the key is just to get your natural goodness to come out. And, and so he redefines morality, not as self-mastery, but as sympathy with sentimental causes, humanitarian causes. I'm a good person if I am sympathetic to the downtrodden or to the poor. And, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of humanitarian causes. But it's ironic that you see these Hollywood people who are personally vile, as vile as you possibly could get. They treat each other terribly, but they feel themselves virtuous people because they go out and they say, I'm in favor of, of giving money to this woman's shelter. And, and that's my cause in life. And I'm a great person because of that. And Rousseau is the person who created that type of morality. It's kind of a false morality. You, you, can, you can neglect you can neglect your relationships that are right in front of you, your friends, your family, you can treat them terribly, but you can redefine your virtue if you associate yourself with sentimental causes. And that's Rousseauism in a, 
in a nutshell. And it's been extremely influential for hundreds of years uh, in redefining morality, guiding politicians about what they say and what they do. Um, it's, it's, it's been a, quite frankly, a disaster for the West that this is, that this is how morality is now defined. And I would even say, you know, some churches have embraced this type of morality that, that really virtue is about associating yourself with certain causes. Um, and, you know, those causes may be perfectly worthy, but you're forgetting the, the fundamental core of morality is mastering yourself, making yourself orderly, making yourself virtuous. And that's, that's lost in Rousseauism. Um, I, I find it interesting you talk about the Hollywood people who have these sentimental feelings, but sometimes they don't actually have the self-mastery to actually apply them. Uh, there's a new podcast that comes out at the end of the month I came across from the New York Times that's called uh, Nice White Parents. And I've, I, I listened to the, uh, to the uh, preview with my wife last night, and it discusses a situation where um, in the 60s, they wanted to build a new school, um, I think in New York, uh, but I'm not positive. And they were going to build it in this neighborhood uh, where a lot of minorities lived. And a bunch of the white parents came forward and said, oh, no, 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 you should build it in our neighborhood because then our kids will go to school with these kids and we'll actually have a really integrated school system. And they had hundreds of letters sent in saying that they would send their kids to this school and all this stuff, you know, that it would help integration. And so the school board decided to do build the school there. They, they completely changed their plans, built the school there. And then when it was constructed, not one of those parents sent their kid to that school. Right. And so, um, yeah. It comes they were virtue to, signaling. They were virtue signaling. And uh, yes. that's, that's a common problem. And, and my book, bring, to bring it back to my book, is that this fondness for sentimental humanitarian causes actually causes a lot of wars. You know, I mean, we justified the invasion of Iraq because we were going to liberate the people of Iraq. They were downtrodden. They, didn't, they were under a dictator. They didn't have any civil rights. We were going to go in there and transform the country. The, 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 the invasion was justified on the basis of sentimental humanitarianism. Um, and this is very dangerous. This is very, very dangerous. Um, uh, and, and it's justified a lot of wars. You know, going back to Wilson's make the world safe for democracy, these crusading humanitarian causes end up causing imperialism. Now, one of the one of the problems in Babbitt's thought, kind of contradictions or complications that I see, is that he, the whole premise to democracy and leadership is that we need leaders to temper democracy so that we stay out of these um, imperialistic conflicts. But I found it ironic that most, in fact, I, I think that if you go until you get back to the Spanish American War. I think you can easily argue that every single American conflict was elite driven where Wilson drove World War I. Roosevelt was driving World War II through the Lend-Lease program before Pearl Harbor. Obviously, Pearl Harbor changed things in terms of mass support, but he was setting us up to be able to do World War II uh, to go in. You had uh, the Vietnam War was never supported by the masses and uh, Huntington, who you write about, goes in um, his entire book about soldier in the state focuses on how the Korean war never had mass support. It, it was very similar, um, you know, and even, uh, even Iraq, uh, the Iraq war in Afghanistan, I don't know that the popular imagination really understood where we wanted to do until Bush brought up, Hey, let's go to, go to Afghanistan and go to Iraq. Um, how do you kind of square that? Because it seems that um, the United States democracy goes the opposite way. It, the general public generally wants to stay out of wars. That was Trump's appeal and even Barack Obama's appeal before that was yep. that they said, let's pull out of wars and that true public support. I would say that Babbitt would agree with you that since the Spanish-American War, the United States has been badly led. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the conclusion I think he would reach, is that uh, we have been led by our leaders into a lot of unnecessary wars. And uh, that, that backs up his thesis in, the, in democracy and leadership. Leadership is the key to, to having a healthy democracy. 
Um, and, you know, Wilson bringing us into World War One that, that was just, it, that, that was imperialism. He, he, you're right, he was an elite who led us into that war, uh, almost deceptively led us into that war. World War II, I think, is a different case, but uh, a lot of these wars, Iraq is the, the classic example of a, a, a really an imperialistic war where leaders just decided they were so full of uh, rage and passion, they were going to go into Iraq no matter what. Um, even if it didn't make sense, even if it wasn't in national interest, even though even they were naive about the ability to plant democracy in Iraq, they were going in no matter what. And that, that's very troubling. Yeah, I, I want to be clear that I'm not making a normative statement on any of the wars that I mentioned, more just the fact that um, they began, they, their genesis began with the elites rather than widespread public demand, hey, we want to go into a war. Even, even going back to um, the Peloponnesian War and Athens' invasion into Syracuse, um, you could, I, I think it's easy to argue that that began not with widespread public demand uh, to invade Syracuse, but began with the uh, machinations of Alcibiades. Absolutely. You know, yeah. No, I, I think Babbitt would agree with you that leadership is the key uh, in a democracy. And to deny it, to say, oh, popular opinion will, will solve things is, is to deny human nature. But if those leaders applied more to popular opinion, it, this is where I think that it's, it's complicated, where I see complications in Babbitt's thought. If, if those leaders would have appealed to popular opinion and stuck by it, we probably wouldn't have been in many of those wars to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, yeah. So I, I just kind of see a, a complication on that. Now, in terms of Roussel, like I've found it interesting how Babbitt, like I see parallels between Babbitt and Rousseau sometimes. And, and, and it's bizarre because it, it, Rousseau is the, is the great enemy of Babbitt. <laughs> at least looking backwards, you know? Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah, but I see parallels to some, in, in some degrees. Um, you mentioned how, um, for instance, like uh, like Babbitt finds the, the necessity to be able to temper democracy and, and its kind of salvation, not just through leaders, but through the education of those leaders. And Rousseau writes extensively about education himself, uh, as as ne necessary to be able to build, um, I don't want to say democracies because he wasn't quite quite there. Um, Rousseau is obviously another complex. I, I would say Rousseau is far more complex and far more contradictory. Um, he's he, sometimes he says one thing and then next moment he says another. It's it's and there's a lot of misunderstandings about Rousseau because. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to be able to take a single passage and apply it to his entire thought. Um, but, uh, but he finds uh, the salvation in education through, through his book, Emil. Um, I see, uh, I mean, do you feel that there's somewhat of a tension here that there are similarities between the two, despite the fact that he's very antagonistic towards herself? The, the, there are similarities in the sense that both Babbitt and Rousseau believe education is the key to democracy, uh, mm -hmm. edu educating citizens in a certain way, but they have a completely different view about what education is. Sure. You know, if, if you read the Emile, but basically Rousseau says what children, the only habit children should have is having no habits, <laughs> you know, so don't in any way master yourself, become, be impulsive, um, you know, he's the, he's the inspiration behind the Montessori school, right? Just don't guide children. Don't teach them discipline. Let them act spontaneously. That's a very different understanding of education than Babbitt's understanding. Babbitt's understanding was a classical education creates self-mastery. It allows you to rein in your passions. It allows you not to be spontaneous. It, it allows you to build good habits, they have a very different view about what education is and where it comes from. Um, that That's true. I, to push back just a little bit though, I mean, uh, like Emil again is a very complex book. I mean, it's very long. Um, and, and to be fair, I haven't read, read it in somewhere between 20 and 25 years now, but yeah. like um, one of the things that struck me, was the different he he has a very systematic view of hey this is how you approach education and and for instance as as children get to 
um, closer to what we would now call adolescence. He believes that they should learn a trade and be, be so that they can be able to move on and do different, uh, different things. Um, does believe in terms of formal, uh, different types of formal education that they should be reading and, and learning things. So, I mean, you know, he does have a structure behind it that he thinks is going to uh, um, equip a person with certain types of moral virtues uh, to be able to move on. I don't think it's completely fair to say that he's devoid of that, but you're, you're, you're right that it's a very different form of education and a different sense of what that means. Rousseau uses the term virtue a lot. Yes. But he has a very different understanding about what virtue is than, say, in Aristotle. Yes. Um, so he's a, he's a very, I agree with you, he's a very complex figure. He's, he, he contradicts himself. But I think the overall spirit of the Emil is that children are naturally good. Allow them to be spontaneous. That's the way to educate them. Let them follow up on their feelings and, and all will work out great. Um, that's, the, that's the spirit of the Emil. And that's very different understanding of education than, than Irving Babbitt's understanding, which is creating self-discipline, uh, creating good habits, overcoming your passions. Those, that, that's the education that Babbitt wants. No, no, that's, that's fair. Now, in terms of, uh, I was surprised that Babbitt doesn't discuss Durkheim more often especially as I've gotten older and have gotten an appreciation of Durkheim. Um, I feel that it's impossible today to understand Rousseau's social contract without reading uh, division of labor um, in society. Like, um, cause I think Durkheim, his, his explanation of mechanical solidarity is literally what Rousseau's talking about when he's talking about, uh, about the state and about forming things. And, and Durkheim does a good job on, on distinguishing between the concept of law and the state where um, a lot of political philosophers today uh, have a hard time. They, they think the law is impossible to exist without the state. But I think Durkheim helps clarify that. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I think is is key to the social contract theorists was the way that they approached um, the origin of society, I feel, uh, going through Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, um, was less about the origin of a state than it is necessarily about the origin of law oftentimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, like, is there a reason why, why Babbitt didn't, didn't uh, gravitate towards Durkheim in his discussions? I just find it fascinating because Durkheim's writing in French Babbitt's reading everything under the sun in French, and yet he doesn't doesn't even approach him, from what I can tell. After after reading as much Babbitt as I possibly could, even private papers and letters, I don't <laughs> recall a single mention of Durkheim. And I do find that curious because Babbitt is very interested in the human psychology, right? He he lays out a, a kind of a, a theory of epistemology that the human will is the most important characteristic of the soul and the will will guide and shape your imagination, how you see the world and your imagination will shape your reason. It will, it will tell you how, where you're going to apply your logic to certain problems. If you, if your imagination is attracted towards money, you're going to be, your reason is going to try to figure out money making schemes. If your imagination is tracked and it all goes back to the will. And so he has this, he, he really, explores in depth the human psychology and I would have thought he would have uh, been influenced in one way or another by Durkheim but I don't see any evidence of it whatsoever and I agree he's his French is I mean he he regularly went to the Sorbonne and lectured and spent time in Paris and and uh so I I can't account for it yeah it, it just caught me by surprise now division of labor and society was translated before 1924 into English, but obviously Babbitt wouldn't have needed a translation. He just would have read it in the original. Um, unlike myself who, who struggle with languages and gravitate towards every translation I can find. But uh, (laughs) um, the, okay. So I want to get to Huntington's clash of civilizations because you conclude the, the book um, discussing three key uh, sources of, of political thought about, I don't know that I would describe it as international relations theory. Um, I guess I would describe it as, as 
three different philosophies or theories about world order because I, 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 Fukuyama's into history paradigm, I don't think of as, as an international relations yes. uh, theory. I would say the other two could be. Uh, Kissinger's obviously heavy into international relations, um, but you kind of reject those two, but gravitate towards Huntington um, and his Clash of Civilizations thesis. Um, how Can you kind of help me understand how you see Babbitt um, fitting into um, Huntington's idea of of the in the clash of civilizations, primarily the idea that um, there are different civilizational hemispheres where um, you know cultural groups that are kind of distinguished between each other. How does how does Babbitt's idea on leadership and democracy and imperialism kind of fit into that? Yeah, what I wanted to do in that last chapter is kind of uh-huh. update, update uh, Babbitt's thought for contemporary problems. You know, and Babbitt applied his theories of, of character education and, and, and statesmanship to the, the Western European powers, which were obviously at war at each other's throats. And, and that was the major problem of international affairs at, the, at Babbitt's time. So I wanted to say, okay, well, what's the, what's the major contemporary challenge of international affairs. And, and I'm, I'm very attracted to Huntington's thesis. I, I think it doesn't fit in some places, but generally theory on how things are working. And basically what he says is at the end of the Cold War, uh, all these artificial alliances that were driven by free versus communist countries, all those disappeared. And what countries wanted to do is return to their civilizational roots, their religion, their culture, their heritage, their history. You know, at the end of the Cold War, for example, the first thing that the Russians did was they started building gigantic Orthodox cathedrals all around Moscow and in other places. Um, they, wanted to, they wanted to refresh their history and their religion. Um, and at the end of the Cold War, what, what happened in the West? We, we formed the EU. Um, the, the Western powers came together, excluded Turkey, for example, from the EU because it was an Islamic country. And so we sort of unconsciously started trying to come together as the West. And, and even in Asia, what you saw at the end of the Cold War was, um, while there are still tensions in the region between Vietnam and China, and, and certainly, but for example, the number of, of trips between Taiwan and mainland China went through the roof at the end of the Cold War. People started visiting um, uh, the, the mainland from Taiwan. So you saw these civilizational units sort of come together. Um, and I think the theory applies strongest in the, in the Russian example, where um, Russia wants desperately to hold on to Eastern Ukraine and Georgia and places that they feel are rooted in their civilization. Not so much Poland. Russians aren't going to invade Poland. Poland is a Western country now. Uh, and I, I would have supported putting them in NATO at the time because I don't think they were, they're, they're, they're not, they don't belong in the Russian sphere. But I think we should also be very careful as statesmen not to try to bring Ukraine. We, we're bringing Montenegro into NATO. I don't, I don't understand the cultural and, and historical reason for that. Um, so I, I very much respected Huntington's theory, and I, I you know, what I, what I tried to do, to say to do in the book is to say, the the, the places where statesmen need, need now to show restraint and understanding is on a civilizational basis. We need to understand Russia's uh, resurgence uh, of their culture and history, and their sensitivity about Western influences in places where the Orthodox religion and Russian culture is, is paramount. Um, and that's, that's sort of where we need to show restraint now. I, I find a little bit of an inconsistency between Huntington and Babbitt though, to the extent where Huntington's thesis though, gives those hegemonic powers within those civilization bases. Um, essentially imperialistic powers over the smaller countries nearby them. Uh, Russia is a great example because um, their opposition to many of the color revolutions, while you could argue the United States getting involved can be imperialistic from our end in terms of the West imposing ideas. um, You can definitely argue that Russia is obviously acting imperialistic in terms of their involvement, Um, especially uh, Ukraine's a great example where 
they've tried to uh, tried to have you know try to impose their leaders uh, within Ukraine within the uh, um, within I believe it's the People's Party. I'm trying to remember my yeah. my yeah. political parties of of Ukraine. Yes, and uh, you know definitely within a sense of of competitive authoritarianism, trying to make sure that they that they act as a black knight oftentimes. Um, and imperialistic. I mean, that doesn't, there seems to be kind of an inconsistency between the two, because I would think Babbitt would say Russia shouldn't be allowed to act imperialistically. They should have strong leaders that are resistant to that impulse as well. Yeah. Russia is clearly an authoritarian country and they do meddle in the affairs of their neighbors. There's, there's simply no doubt about that. But I think with, with respect to the Ukrainian crisis, for example, that was driven by Western meddling. I mean, we sponsored, the State Department and the CIA sponsored a coup d'etat against the Russian-leaning president of Ukraine. And it was that coup d'etat which brought to power in Ukraine an anti-Russian president, the U.S.'s pick for uh, the, the presidency. That's what caused him to the Russians to take Crimea. Um, so it was Western meddling in, in Ukraine that actually caused the Russians to, they did engage in imperialistic behavior, there's no doubt, but it was Western meddling that instigated that. And I think Babbitt would have said that meddling in Ukraine in a sphere of influence that's not part of Western civilization, it's part of Orthodox civilization, was a very dangerous thing. And, and uh, Huntington warned specifically about Ukraine yes, in his book. And said, yes, he does. It's a cleft country. It's torn between the West and the East. And these countries are the ones that where you have to have diplomacy and statesmanship, where the two hegemonic powers of the different civilizations have to get together. And that's not what we did. The United States ended up just meddling in the affairs of Ukraine to the chagrin of the Russians. And that, that was the wrong approach. I mean, I think we should have, we should have sat down with the Russians and say, okay, what are we going to do about Ukraine? It's divided between the West and the East. You have interests there. We have interests there. Let's have a federation. Let's do something that can, we can have a peaceful outcome. And that, that's not what's happened. We've had Western meddling. We have Western uh, weapons going into Eastern Ukraine to, have, to create an insurgency. It's not a good situation. And, and that's exactly the kind of situation where you'd need some, some restraint and some statesmanship. Um, to solve the problem. And what we've gotten is two imperial powers interfering and the people that are, are losing out are the people of Ukraine. Sure. I mean, and obviously you're right about Huntington. He actually calls out literally the Donbass region as being questionable. Although to be fair um, to the West, when they had the vote for independence, both Crimea, Crimea and the Donbass region at the time did vote, um, you know, a majority vote to be able to secede from the USSR and, and belong to Ukraine, um, you know, when they had that independence vote. Going back to the, uh, to the maiden uh, revolution that, that occurred in Ukraine, though, it's, I think it's complicated to say that it was uh, pushed by the United States uh, and the West because it began uh, because the Ukrainian president pulled out of an agreement uh, to be able to essentially um, have a trade agreement with the EU um, that wasn't quite a common market, but was kind of similar to that. Uh, Russia essentially forced them to pull out, uh, said, you know, kind of put pressure on them to pull out. Uh, and then that sparked um, protest movement in the streets uh, afterwards. So, right. I mean, it's, it's a complex, you're right. It's tie. It's, it's torn between the West and the East. Um, and there's a long history of, of, complications between the two. Uh, Anne Applebaum wrote a great book, The Red Famine, not too long ago, um, yep. before yep. her current one, uh, that talks about um, not just what Stalin did in terms of, uh, of Ukraine, specifically during the USSR, but it, it even kind of gives you a, a sense of the history behind um, Ukraine's sense of their own identity and some of the complications with Russia. So, I mean, I, I, I do agree it's complicated. It's tough, though, because it's complicated because if you completely pull out, you're essentially allowing Russia to, to impose their own sense of imperialism upon the country, too. Yes, uh, there's, there's no doubt. But um, again, a, a strong Western statesman that had a sense of restraint 
could get together with the Russians and try to reach some reasonable accommodations uh, for, for the people of Ukraine to have their own country, have their own culture, but to balance the, the interests of the West and the East. And that's just the opposite of what's happened there, unfortunately. Now, is something I want to get to um, before we go. I, I was, not too long ago, I finished uh, Hobbes' Leviathan. Um, I went back to that book and always told myself, you know, I, I, I should have read that a long time ago and, uh, and kind of read it in some, some chunks and pieces and got through it. Now, what I found interesting in your book was you actually cite some passages from Babbitt where he's very critical of Hobbes um, in terms of his, uh, his philosophy. And obviously Hobbes's ultimate conclusion is, is very draconian, but there's some parallels between the two where Babbitt says, Hey, you know, to be able to establish a, a strong sense of law and order, you know, to be able to make democracy function, you need strong leaders. Hobbes had a similar problem where he saw the thing that this, that, that monarchy was capable of giving its people was literally the law. And so he, he really believed strongly in terms of the law, but the only way that he saw that possible was through, um, you know, having the, the creation of the state effectively and the creation of strong, uh, strong absolute monarchy made it so that there was only one figure outside, uh, outside the, the law. Um, but he essentially did the same thing. He, he, you know, he, he said, Hey, let's find a workaround. Let's just create a strong leader to be able to impose the law. Babbitt says, Hey, to, to make democracy function, let's focus on the leaders. Did you find it odd at all the way how, how he has tension against Hobbes as well? I, I kind of a, fa- a fan of Hobbes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, has a, he has a very he has a very elegant solution to the problems of order, right? You know, you just you make a king and he's in charge and he gets to decide. <laughs> uh, it's a very elegant, simple solution. Um, you know, Babbitt was more concerned about the problems of democracy. How do, how do you have an orderly yep. democracy? And um, how how can you how can you restore order and keep order in a democracy? And uh, you know, he reached the conclusion that the only way you can do that is by having orderly citizens and orderly leaders. That's, that's the way you have an orderly democracy. Now, uh, Hobbes was a little more pessimistic about human nature and said, you're never going to have orderly citizens or orderly leaders. You're going to have to have, to have this imposed from the top. Uh, uh, Babbitt would, sit, would probably be a little more optimistic about human nature and say that uh, you can have democracies if you have orderly people. Um, and that's where freedom comes from. It doesn't come from being declared. It comes from why, it, you know, you ever watch the show Mayberry RFD? You know, why does, why did Andy Griffith walk around that town without a gun? Because everybody was self-ordered. You didn't need a, you didn't need a Leviathan to, to rule over Mayberry. You, you had very orderly citizens. You didn't need, and freedom, freedom comes from that. Freedom comes from people being self-ordered themselves, and then there's no need for the authorities to impose their will. Um, and, and Babbitt was very attached to that idea, and Hobbes was, Hobbes was the opposite. He said people will never be self-ordered, and we, therefore we have to have a Leviathan who imposes it. Um, mm-hmm. Babbitt was a little more optimistic that with the right type of leadership, with the right kind of ethical behavior, you could have orderly and free citizens. Okay. So to, to kind of, kind of wrap up, Bill, um, this was, you said that this was your, uh, essentially your PhD dissertation. Correct. Uh, very cool. Um, are, are you working on a new book or do you have a direction on your research that's new? Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> Uh, my, my publisher, the University of Michigan Press, asked for a book proposal, which I have submitted, and it's now pending there. And it's a, it's a series of essays about international relations, but from an, what we call philosophically upstream perspective. You know, um, what motivates international relations from a philosophical perspective? Um, looking at idealism, democratic liberalism, all the different theories of international relations. And, and we have some good authors that, would, uh, that have agreed to put some essays in those books, a Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, there's, a, there's some serious, serious authors. If the, 
proposals accepted. So I'm hoping that that will be my next project, that they'll accept that and, and uh, we'll put out this book. And I'll, I'll be the editor and I'll, I'll have an essay mm -hmm. in it, but I, it will be not my work. It'll be the work of 14 or 15 other essayists. Sometimes those are the best books. Uh, I just reviewed this past weekend a uh, book on uh, Argentinian politics. And uh, there were some amazing authors that were included in there, including uh, Stephen Levitsky, who is uh, one of my uh, favorite authors. I think he's one of the most groundbreaking political scientists of our time right now. Uh, he was included in that. Um, you know, Kenneth F. Green, who's another one of the um, groundbreaking uh, scholars of Latin American politics, yep. um, just names that you come across. And they were just included in this book of essays about Argentina. And it was well put together so that it um, had a common message. It, it, like each chapter built on itself. So it made a lot of sense. Uh, there's a lot of books like that. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll do a shameless advertisement. We actually publish uh -huh. a, a humanities journal at our center at Catholic University, Center for the Study of Statesmanship. It's called Humanitas. And it's been a journal that's 15 years uh, running. And we get some very serious authors. I kind of ex recommend you kind of poke around, given your sure. in how intellectually curious you are, because there's a lot of really, really good essays in, in, in the Humanitas uh, journal. Um, and you can find that on our website website at Catholic University. No, um, exciting. And I also would highly recommend Rousseau and Romanticism. If you're, uh -huh. if you're interested in Rousseau, the definitive Bible of Rousseau studies is Irving Babbitt's Rousseau and Romanticism, which does not attack Rousseau from a political perspective. It's not a discussion of Rousseau's politics. It's a discussion of Romanticism and the ideas behind Romanticism. Um, and it's a very, very interesting book. It's my favorite book of his, of Babbitt's, uh, even more than Democracy and Leadership. Yeah, Rousseau's always kind of captured my imagination since I was uh, going all the way back to high school. So um, that's that's always kind of, and uh, it, you know, I, I went through a period where I read a lot of a lot of literature. I don't do it as much anymore. My kids make fun of me now because they say, "Why don't you ever read fiction?" But uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. get the same thing. I get the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it'd be it'd be interesting to look back and and to kind of dig deeper into that. Well. Um, thank you so much for being with, uh, with me today, having the conversation. The book is uh, Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt and Warlike Democracies. Um, thank you for joining me. Oh, I thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, um, I will let you go. Um, if, uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Um, and, uh, and check out the blog, uh, www.democracyparadox.com. Um, love to be able to uh, uh, hear from uh, those of you who are listening. All right. Thanks. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.